episode start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein here with Nicholas Zart. Sneaking in just before the end of Q1, we are now on Stitcher Radio, and we had a request in some of our comments to get onto Google Play too, so that will be our next goal. How go things with you, Nicholas? Excellent. Thank you, Matthew. Um, pretty good. You know, you're right. We never think about Google Play, but it's actually uh, it's something I've been meaning to go and listen to a little bit more to. So everything is fine here. We're going from rainy to sunny, and uh, I'm not every day on my bicycle, so that kind of bothers me. <laughs> uh, a, I'm sure that would be a big crimp on your lifestyle there. It is. It is. It's a tough life, but you know, somebody's got to live it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Much like Tesla uh, ramping up uh, towards the end of the quarter, after a little bit of a hiatus, uh, we are also trying to ramp ourselves up. So we'll see if we manage to get another one recorded, at least in the span of a week. Uh, as a quick reminder, before we get into the meat of the matter, or veggie meat or uh, imitation meat, uh, depending on your dietary preference, uh, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com, and you can support us through Patreon on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. And finally, our usual reminder that if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. We do, in fact, have two new reviews to share, so that's pretty cool. Thank you, guys. My Pet Cow from uh, the USA gave us a three-star review, noting that they thoroughly enjoyed the podcast with all the solar and EV topics, but are disappointed at the quality of the audio. So definitely point taken. I've been trying to, to fiddle with my settings, so there's a less static and noise on my end, so hopefully that will improve very quickly. Uh, Ruben Bernardino, also from the US, gave us a five-star review, so thank you as well, Ruben, mentioning that we offer authoritative and yet entertaining analysis and insightful conversation. So yes, uh, that all those wow. social skills in school are working. Huh? It actually really is. It's, it's a very nice compliment because it's exactly what we try to do is how can we shove, how much information can we shove in 20 to 30 minutes and that's still digestible for everyone. So that's a really, that's a very wonderful feedback. Thank you. Yes. So thank you again, Ruben. And without further ado, let's start off. Nicholas? Sure. So I've got a weird topic for you today, and it's one that I really love. So I, I, I like anything that bridges different technologies and different sciences and things like that. So one of the things that I remember hearing about uh, decades ago is how they were graphing organic parts on computer parts to make them work together. So this story is, is a little similar, and it comes from Goodyear. And Goodyear has found a way to uh, recoup a lot of that carbon dioxide with their tires. But the way they do it is really bizarre. They're using moss. Yes, you've heard moss, just a regular moss. You know, when it rains, you have a lot of moss somewhere outside. And so this, this is sort of a good year's way of, pardon the pun, it's, it's really almost impossible not to do it, but to reinvent the wheel. And by putting moss in the actual tire itself, it basically... Uh, soaks up some of the carbon dioxide. Now, of course, the company is is very optimistic. It's saying that if every car, is, for instance, would use those kind of tires, a city like Paris, for instance, would remove about 4,000 uh, tons of uh, CO2 every year. So really funky, really interesting, but I think it's also, it's, it's fascinating because we're seeing a lot more of these different sciences and technologies come together. And sometimes, you know, I mean, who would have thought of putting moss in a tire for crying out loud? 
Yeah, we have over here a number of living walls in some of our malls, basically. Yes. Little um, panels that go on walls which have plants growing on them or moss. I guess moss is a little bit easier to maintain because it doesn't, it doesn't have leaves that turn yellow if it's dying, I guess. Yeah. And this is a really interesting one because it, it, it also reminds me not just of the malls, but of the living skyscraper ideas where you have vines or other greenery going through different sky, through skyscrapers in the sky, which help to cool the building. They do provide some insulation, but they also could be used for food. And of course, they do absorb CO2. It's like, it's nothing special about this moss. If the moss happened to be on the ground instead of on the wheel, then I'm sure it would absorb CO2 as well. But why not put it on the wheels if, if you can? It's hardy stuff. It, it grows everywhere you don't want it. There are specific moss fungicide or mossicide uh, products. So yeah, why not use that tenacity to our advantage? Yeah, it's 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 actually really fascinating when you when you're also looking at what they're doing with concretes. You're right, you know that that entrapped CO2. There's so many things that we can do. We could actually have roads that would uh, entrap that. But it always kind of worries me because it's not it's not a panacea. I mean, we're not going to solve everything like that. It is just one brick in the wall. So, but nonetheless, I mean, moss and tires. That one really caught my attention. Yeah, it, it's just that. Since moss, at least here in Vancouver, grows in the cracks of sidewalk and all sorts of places, <laughs> you wouldn't expect living things to live. I would think it actually has a decent chance of, of actually, you know, reproducing and, and spreading in a tire, whereas a typical plant might have a lot more difficulty, right? It's, yeah. It's tenacious yeah. stuff. I guess there might be a small hit to the aerodynamics. It probably won't be huge, but if you can integrate that, and some people I'm sure would be interested in it, I would be kind of cool, then absolutely, it's a neat idea. And hopefully we get uh, some consumer interest in that and they can move that forward to be, you know, an actual product, maybe on electric trucks or electric buses, perhaps, which are very visible and they do a lot of driving. So there's lots of chance to kick up rainwater and dirt from the roadway to, uh, to help True. make the True. moss fuller. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also just to, to specify, I mean, it is going to be part of the compound of the tire. So I was actually thinking that we could have green tires, purple tires. I mean, lichens have, have really beautiful purple colors. So it would be nice to have different tires and black tires. Anyway, <laughs> you know, our other story, though, is, is some, so again, another one that really, really surprised me. So Fair to Future, if you, if you remember back in November, we wrote a story and we were just basically asking, are they gone? Are they finished? They've taken on a huge beating the past two, three years. So uh, strangely enough, two weeks after that, we hear of two, uh, two groups of different ex-employees who start their own company. And uh, at the end of the year, big drama, uh, the CEO is called back to China, doesn't go back to China, doesn't go and explain himself. He's, uh, he's now on a, on, a, on a blacklist back there in China. But somehow at the very last, uh, at the 11th hour, he manages to get some money for Faraday Future, supposedly, I, I believe, in Hong Kong. And all of a sudden, the company turns around now, two months later, and says, hey, we're not going to do that factory in uh, Nevada. We're going to go do w one right here in California. And guess what? We're going to repay some of our debt. So this is huge because they could have just, you know, done the, the factory and that would have been good. And, you know, people would have been happy halfway criticizing. But repaying the debts or at least part of the debts or starting to repay the debts that's something that's going to uh to help uh, Faraday's future uh, well at least get better in the in the long term so the real question is are they back time will tell 
Yeah, Faraday Future kind of ties in with the earlier Goodyear Moss tire story in that Faraday Future has also proved to be rather tenacious. Uh, I think Zachary actually inserted the video from Destiny's Child Survivor uh, in the bottom of your article there. So yeah, in any new industry, you have lots of new entrants and there's lots of casualties. It's like it's like those animals which have a thousand offspring and only one or two survive. I don't know, like salmon maybe. Whereas in mature industries, it's more like you know mammals, big mammals like bears or something, where there isn't that much change in the population <laughs> over time. Right? The top three players have 33% market share total, and as hopeful and promising as uh, Tesla's efforts uh, may be, uh, it takes a lot of time and money to to actually expand that much. Right? Nissan's going to take five years to add 4 million cars per year of capacity. And then their market share is going to go from like 11 to maybe 13%. Yeah. So, and that's, that's capital for them. I I think that's the problem. I think most people are probably unaware of the astronomical amount of money that it takes and and not just money too, also the resources. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And we're definitely seeing that, that David against Goliath uh, fight, you know, the small little slim startups that can change their, their trajectory in a, in a second against the big guys who, you know, know what they're doing really well, but are just much slower. So it's, it's interesting to see how these companies are, uh, you, you know what? In, in many ways, it's the it's the far west. It's the wild far west when when you know the pioneers were coming out to California, and some made it, some didn't. Some did it in a very nice way. Some did it, I'm sure, in a very bad way. And, and you know, in the end, that's just life. It's a messy product, but um, it's looking good so far. And and we sure hope Faraday Future is back because, I mean, it has its place. You know, it has its place. What's it? What what it's done? It's it, or what it should be doing at least. What should be it should be offering will be uh, very important for the EV community in general. I definitely agree with that. I suppose one thing I'll be interested to look for, and this doesn't relate too much to clean tech, but with the current pounding that Facebook is getting, I believe uh, Elon Musk even deleted some Facebook accounts for Tesla and SpaceX today. With the absolute uh, rubbishing that Facebook is getting, being raked over the coals, I'm thinking that this whole move fast and break things uh, slogan and attitude in Silicon Valley might be taking a back seat for a while. Not only has Facebook's move fast and break things purportedly helped to break democracy or something, something like that with, with electoral results, but the, the lack of safety for data, Uber had that fatal accident with a pedestrian uh, this week as well. And there's another case where moving quickly and possibly breaking things I mean, it's fine if you're just updating smartphone apps, but if there are yes. consequences to people's health or lives, that, that begins to put you in the space where you become very risk averse, which is actually what automakers have been often accused of being because it's so expensive, because you can get sued a lot more easily for defects in a car than a toaster or a, I don't know, a refrigerator, then by nature, automakers have been very slow to move because... You know, if you if you just hold to the status quo, you get a cushy job, nice retirement, whatever. If you move forward and forge ahead and take a risk, that could cost un, untold sums of money from your company. And uh, it's good that the many electric car advocates have injected a little bit of urgency into automakers' plans. That's fantastic. Yes. Uh, but one sign of them maturing will be that they start to adopt these slower, cautious approaches. I could imagine, and I think um, 
one of the, uh, I think the, the CEO of Toyota said uh, at one point that if you had too many fatalities with uh, automated driving, with driverless cars too soon, then there'd be this humongous social bias against it and you'd yes. slow the progress for years and years and years. And you absolutely don't Decades, want Decades, yes. You know, obviously there will be problems and everything. You know, the, the, just very quickly, the one thing about Facebook that I just find amusing is wh why do we complain? We, do we give all of our information away. Do you know what would be really funny? As of now, go on your, uh, your settings and just say whatever the heck you feel like it. Give Facebook the wrong data. If all of us do it, boy, it's going to be a lot of fun. I agree that that would be something to do, but unfortunately, I think I've got, I don't use Facebook that much, but I think I've already had enough data up until like 2018. Um, oh, that yeah. you, can, you can create a pretty laser-like profile of who I am. And even if I start to put in <laughs> fake in interests, which I have done, I mean, I, I kind of chose, you know, books yeah, at random that uh, would try to yeah, exactly. and, and misidentify me. Even doing that a little bit, I think but they I think probably still have a good idea of who exactly I am. Well, we, you know, and I think you're right. If individually we do that, but imagine if we all did that, that would be great. It would, uh, it would make Mark Zuckerberg's, uh, it might lop off a couple zeros from his uh, net worth and empire, but uh, <laughs> then we'd just be back to the, the world of TV where advertisers didn't really have a good idea of what other people, what, what their customers were like. And um, maybe as privacy concerns increase, then we will look at with fondness at that uh, anyway. So uh, with respect to privacy, this next story has maybe a little bit more to do with personal space in that I was at World Smart Energy Week in Tokyo a few weeks back. Um, you know, full disclosure, uh, Toyota was uh, willing to send my way there, mainly so that I could uh, see if there was anything interesting about fuel cells to say. We rode the trains to the conference, or I rode the trains to the conference in the morning and back in rush hour in the evening. And yeah, there wasn't all that much personal space all the time. You know, it was, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty crowded. One thing that I was unprepared for though, was that Vancouver, we have our, uh, our rail system called the SkyTrain. And that is actually more crowded than the crowdest, crowdiest, crowdedest time uh, that I was riding the <laughs> trains which I was fascinated by because back when I was growing up in the 80s, they had these videos of people who, whose job it was to literally push people into yeah. so more people could cram in. And I was asking my friend about that. And he said, well, they did have that, but the solution is yeah. build more infrastructure. So yeah, like totally. Yeah, Matthew, I, I, I lived in Japan and yeah, you're right. I, I was expecting that and I was very fearful walking into my first metro, but it's absolutely not like that. It's, it's actually much more, the Japanese are very efficient. I did a bit of digging on the Tokyo metro system and they estimate there's about 40 million gate crossings daily. You have to cross a little fair gate to get in and a fair gate to get out. So that's 20 million travel segments. Maybe everyone takes on average two trains to get where they want to go. That makes 10 million trips or 5 million round trips. And that's, that's a fair bit. And that's just with the train systems. Does include buses or other, other transport. So, um, yeah, if you wanted to replace those passengers with private vehicles in a system of tunnels, as a certain unnamed person wants to do, you would need hundreds of levels of tunnels and possibly dozens of levels of parking underneath the, or above those tunnels in a seismically unstable area. So really, I, um, I got to go with the trains and the, the, the mass public transport on that one. That's, that's just me. 
I, I miss mass transportation. I really miss it. I was reading a book not too long ago about the, the old Trans-European Express, uh, Trans-Europe Express uh, 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 trains. And, and I was looking at the whole, you know, the rail system out there is absolutely amazing. And, it, and I do miss that. Or even living in New York City when you can just hop on a cab. And that's uh, something that we really need to... Uh, beef up around here. Yeah, I guess density is a real, uh, is a real challenge because New York, you have lots of density. Yes. Europe, all these cities uh, became cities before cars, so people didn't have that much mobility, so everything's built close together. Uh, and interesting yes. thing about Tokyo is that private automobiles and motorcycles are only a secondary portion of urban transport. A lot of people do walk, just, just walk to where they need to go, again, yes. because the city got big before cars. If I, if I think about... Um, where urban planners want to go with fewer cars and more cycling, more mixed use, more transportation options, then hopefully, you know, we can get to that level, uh, not just switching gasoline vehicles to electric vehicles, which is fantastic, absolutely, uh, but then even getting more people on buses, bikes, and, you know, back on their feet. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know, we lived in Kyoto in Japan and never owned a car. In fact, even in New York City, it just made no sense to own a car. But I remember also riding my bike a lot, walking a lot. And of course, public transportation is so, uh, is so funny. Just, just one little funny thing to say. During rush hour, you had a, a fellow in his uniform who would stand on the middle of the uh, platform. And he would point in one direction and would point to the other direction. And he is there just to tell you that on this platform, the train comes from that side and goes in that direction. Wow. So uh, I guess a little bit of entrepreneurialism or something. Or was that an actual employee then? Yes. Really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. as, as, well, as well as you have employees who will open the door for you. I mean, you know, also a lot of, you know, grandmas and grandpas are working. But I mean, everybody was, at least in the 90s, everybody was working. There was almost no one employing because... Again, you had a guy in the middle of a platform waving his finger saying from here to there. Yeah, I <laughs> guess that could actually point to a difference in treatment of customers' psychology yes. in North America. I'm not sure how it is in, in Europe, but definitely in Japan where there yes. is an acceptance that, okay, you'll get higher prices, but there's an expectation of, of more service. So absolutely, it could be yes. that you know, with these Japanese train companies, rail companies, many of which lose unbelievable amounts of money they want to be as helpful to the customer as possible maybe there's a maybe that person you know can double as a helper or, or other things if travelers uh, need assistance uh, so uh, it it kind of goes back to that largely mythical now but that idea of lifetime employment where even if the company was able to make you redundant and cut your job it would do its best to try and find some other place for you so that Yes. It basically helps with the morale of the organization because if yes. you think that the organization will cut you off at a moment's notice, then what's your loyalty to the organization? It becomes a kind of a, not as cooperative, basically. There's a much better society, Unisian. I mean, they, they work together well as a, as a group, much better than us. But, you know, different well, results, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say that. Like, there's, there's more homogeneity, so there's more in-crowd, but then that also seems to have the effect of more bullying for people who don't happen to fit the mix, uh, not to get it all into sociology here. Uh, but no. in terms of, in terms of uh, working together, uh, one of the weird ways that Japan really doesn't work together at all, like any other country, is that it actually has two grids. It has a 50 hertz grid like Europe, 
And around like Western Japan, it has a 60 hertz grid like North America. Uh, this is part of the reason why the, uh, the shutdown of the nuclear reactors after the uh, big tsunami and earthquake and meltdown was so bad because there is a very limited transmission capacity between those because they run at different frequencies. And so you have this VHS versus Betamax battle, which has been going on since like 1895, because two companies happened to choose you know, suppliers from different continents for their first electric generators. And that in a weird way, uh, like in, a, in one Freakonomics way, that might explain why Japanese electronics companies were so successful in the 70s. Yes. I'm, I'm sure there are other reasons, but because they had to design for 50 and 60 hertz in their home countries, they didn't have to do any other work to export. You know, export to Europe? Oh, yes. Same product. Export to America, same product. I've always wondered to how, to to what point this was not just like like just business, just regular businesses, right? I mean, a lot of American companies would walk out there and buy and try to sell their converters and everything. Same thing with the Europeans and everything. And so you ended up with the North, fifty hertz, and the South, sixty hertz. And that's just, I mean, it just sounds like one of those things where they split the <laughs> the country in half and they dump their products out there, regardless of the results. Yeah, so I'm sure that both sides, I'm sure they'd love to standardize. I'm absolutely sure they'd love to standardize. But uh, in a weird way, because they were so disorganized back in the day, then it would have been much easier for a Japanese company to export electronics because they already ran on both systems than for an American company to do the same into Europe or vice versa, a European company into America. Uh, but, But anyway, that I think has rebound or reverberating effects uh, around energy because whereas we see electricity as something of an awesome reservoir here in North America and over there in Europe, you have these massive continent-wide grids. Japan isn't just islanded. It, it has two islands, kind of two islanded grids within itself. And so electricity is much less of a backstop, uh, which is one reason for its enthusiasm about hydrogen. Uh, right now, Japan imports more than 90% of its primary energy. You know, there's talk about the U.S. being a net energy exporter. You know, congratulations. Uh, that is definitely not the case in Japan. And in no. terms of figuring out how to put on more renewables in the States, in Europe, not a big deal. You've got this massive grid you can, uh, you can work with. Totally different situation in Japan. And that is probably one of the reasons why they see um, they have enthusiasm for hydrogen because they already import so much liquefied natural gas. It's cryogenic. It's all the, all the skill sets basically that you need for LNG are pretty much applicable to hydrogen. And then preferably, if you can get it from Australia or perhaps Norway, uh, Brunei, they have a little pilot project now, that you can get it without emissions and then you can kind of actually do some decarbonization, which uh, you know, they obviously need a lot of if they want to meet any kind of climate agreements because it's not like they're going to start up any nuclear and renewables are hemmed in by the fact that their grid is just so daft. I say this being Japanese, well, I say the, it affectionately, but you could not write yeah. a bad movie script where a country was more disorganized. Like even, even South Korea and North Korea have the same frequency. That, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I will have some, uh, some pieces coming out on Clean Technica in due course on the, uh, my thoughts and reflections on the World Smart Energy Expo. It's basically batteries, fuel cells, solar, wind. They even had some combustion technology, which was interesting. That's, um, I guess, you know, if you rely on burning fossil fuels for 94% of your energy, then um, even, even with a world going off fossil fuels, 
squeezing out that extra 0.1% efficiency kind of makes a difference in terms of, uh, you know, the, the degree of feeling less energy insecurity. I don't think Japan would ever feel energy secure. Yeah, I, and I, I, actually, you're right. And I just remember I was going to say too, 70% 70, 70 of the Japanese population lives along the coast. The inside is really rocky and mountainous. So when you think about renewable energy, they don't have like those big open, I mean, they, they do have those big open white spaces, but usually it's on a hill. It's not really easily accessible. So they do have an energy problem. And that does explain why the government said, you know what, as of now, hydrogen, Toyota, you do this, Nissan, you do that. Uh, Honda, you do that, and that's why those three companies were so big into hydrogen up until now. It was it was because you know it made most sense, as you said. Yeah, like it, it's I, interesting to see how everything is changing now, and 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 there is a part. I mean, you know, hydrogen has its part in in, uh, in our mobility. Yeah, this isn't to take anything away from renewables. If political the political situation between say Japan, China, uh, South Korea, and Russia were to warm up, I, uh, the the guy from SoftBank is hoping to build a large regional grid. I'm sure that you could get this continental kind of grid and you could enjoy these benefits. Uh, however, there remain for legitimate historical reasons, tensions between pretty much all of those countries with each of each other. So it yeah. remains to be seen, like I, I wouldn't expect Japan to integrate into a massive grid anytime soon, which uh, again explains their fondness for hydrogen because in their situation, they don't have the same advantages that we in continental grid uh, countries do. So uh, anything else to add, Nicholas? Otherwise, uh, we can uh, let people uh, no, finish their commute. No, yeah, I, th okay. I, no I, th I think you said it all. And, and you know, it's funny because for me, the, the, the similarities between Japan and the U.S. are really interesting because, again, you, you go to the highly advanced, you go to the U.S., you know, gone to the, to the moon kind of stuff and everything. But yet houses are made out of wood. You know, they, they still, I mean, the old traditional homes, at least when I lived there 20 years ago, you had to go out and get buy yourself some kerosene, come back home and heat yourself up with it. And you needed to leave the window open because you would asphyxiate yourself. And in the winter, it's cold. <laughs> so yes, so yeah. it's really weird to see these two countries are so similar in so many ways and they command a lot of, uh, a lot of power. Yeah, well, that, that thing about the kerosene, that is actually, that still goes on. That will oh, yeah. strike <laughs> listeners as absolutely crazy. And the, yeah. the reason for that is, again, back to this energy insecurity. There's no space heating in Japan because uh, electricity and fuel are both expensive. And so you don't waste uh, energy heating an entire room if you can just have a little tiny space heater right beside your legs or yep. by the TV chair. And yeah, so... And in fact, in, in fact, you're right. Insulation has never been taken into consideration, at least seriously, uh, with traditional Japanese homes. I mean, I lived in a place where, I kid you not, in the morning there was snow inside the windows still because the windows didn't close well. And I'm talking about sub-freezing temperatures. I mean, getting dressed under your futon. That yes, cold. So yeah, yeah. Fascinating country. I love it. I, I would go back and live in Kyoto in a heartbeat. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are so many wonderful places in the world to visit. Uh, maybe your country as well or, or state, dear listener. Uh, I guess I would say that the, the Japanese construction lobby is apparently unbelievably powerful, which is why Japanese insulation standards are like pre-scientific. Uh, that's it for now. Um, you know, thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you had a safe commute and join us next week to get your electric fix. Yep. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you soon. And we're back on our schedule.